Hey, it's Erica. I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to Global News What Happened to ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So, you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall, rock-climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So, whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. On a mid-August evening in 2014, you might have turned on your TV or went online to watch Jimmy Fallon's latest celebrity interview. The interview with Rob Riggle is wrapping up, and they mention this thing that everyone is doing to raise funds for ALS. Justin Timberlake has called Jimmy Fallon out, along with the late-night show's band The Roots and his sidekick, Steve Higgins. I'm going to pass this on and challenge Jimmy Fallon... Steve Higgins and the Roots. You have 24 hours to respond. So they did. All 14 men, including the surprise guest and ex SNL alum Horatio Sands, all of them, they lined up behind orange buckets filled with ice water. I'm Jimmy Fallon. I'm here with Rob Riggle, Horatio Sands, Steve Higgins, and The Roots. We've all been nominated to do the Ice Bucket Challenge to raise money for awareness for ALS, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And I'd like to nominate the New York Jets to do this. That video would go on to garner over 4 million views on YouTube. And as more people joined in on the viral campaign, a devastating and incurable disease was thrust into the spotlight. Social media feeds flooded with people pouring ice-cold water over their heads and then calling on friends, family, and co-workers to do the same. And also to donate. After all the bodies dried, Did you ever wonder how much money was raised? And what did it accomplish? I'm Erica Vela, a reporter with Global News. And today, we're taking on the dare to find out whatever happened to the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. Hi, I'm Blake Wheeler, Andrew Ladd, Anthony Pluso. The Ice Bucket Challenge popped up on social media feeds all over the world in 2014. I mean, everyone was doing it. For this episode, I wanted to find someone with ALS who could tell me what it was like watching this social media phenomena unfold. You know, someone who could tell me what it felt like knowing that people all over the world were doing this act and raising this money for them. And you know what shocked me? I couldn't. Not one person. And part of the reason why? The Ice Bucket Challenge happened almost six years ago. And what that means is that those diagnosed with ALS at the time have either died or the disease has progressed to the point that they can't talk. They can't breathe on their own anymore. The Ice Bucket Challenge shone light 
on this devastating disease. It was an awareness campaign and arguably one of the most successful campaigns for ALS that has ever existed. If you take into account that the majority of people living with ALS have such a short lifespan with the disease, there isn't a lot of advocacy they can do because the disease progresses so quickly. And the Ice Bucket Challenge was kind of a first for that. You know, people took ice cold water, dumped it over their head and spread the word. But most importantly, they also had to donate. But still, this all seems really random, right? I mean, who started this? Where did it come from? Well, when I started researching, I got to know two very important people to the story. Pete and Julie Frades. They met in the summer of 2011. So we actually, um, we met on a boat on the 4th of July. So there's no doubt that the 4th was always a really special holiday for us. Not be just because we met on the 4th, but Pete is a very patriotic person. And that was extremely important to him. And we both went to Boston College, which was, you know, a big piece of our connection because we both, you know, have such a love for our alma mater. And it was definitely one of those initial connecting points for us. But it was pretty easy to fall right in love with Pete. He was one of those people that is just everyone wants to be around. He's so engaging with everyone and friendly and nice and funny, but also really sincere and just, you know, had this kind of like group, you know, everywhere he went, people were kind of just like wanted to be near him, Um, which I think speaks a lot to, you know, how things turned out for Pete. The way that Julie described Pete, I mean, he really seems like this quintessential all-American guy. And being from Boston, home of the Red Sox, baseball coursed through his blood and he was good enough to play in college. He was a center fielder. Um, He... So he played at Boston College. He was actually not recruited and was a walk-on his freshman year. Ended up being a captain and obviously, you know, hugely successful as a college player. And so, yeah, baseball was huge for him. Um, I think a lot of it was not just so much the sport, but the actual, like, team camaraderie. It's like one of those sports you really got to rely on your teammates and you have to communicate and you have to be you know, supportive. And people always would say that he's the loudest person on the field because he just would not stop talking and cheering on his teammates from the outfield. And you could hear him from (laughs) the stands, which, you know, it's perfectly describes Pete. Julie and Pete's relationship progressed quickly. We'd only been together for about nine months, but we were very serious. We knew that, you know, this was, we were eventually going to be married. In fact, the couple was engaged a year after they met. They had a lot to look forward to, but within months of being together, their world was turned upside down. So the summer we first met, um, I was 21 going into my senior year, and Pete was a 26-year-old, extremely healthy, athletic person, Um, And he actually played for an inner city Boston baseball league, which is actually really competitive. And, you know, a lot of like former D1 athletes and stuff. And so he actually got hit by a pitch in one of the games and his wrist was injured. And it was just taking a lot of time for it to recover. 
And once he started to delve into, you know, what's going on with my wrist, he realized other things were going wrong. His wrist wasn't bouncing back, but also he was losing like his ability to run, you know, without being clumsy. And he felt like his hands were becoming weaker. Um, his dexterity was, you know, declining really rapidly. So it was all, it all kind of started with this injury we thought was just a baseball injury or some sort of nerve damage. And it ended up obviously being much more. On March 13th, 2012, Pete Frades was diagnosed with ALS. Pete was pretty aware of what he was going to be told, um, but none of us, Pete's family or I, really had, I think I might have had the most idea that there was something more serious, but certainly not to the degree of having an ALS diagnosis. And he had, you know, Pete had Googled the symptoms he had, you know, months before, and he had mentally told himself, I know I have this disease, but he never spoke any of that to us. Pete and Julie got the devastating news. They had no idea of the challenges that laid ahead. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, I have to take a minute here and admit, like a lot of people before 2014, I didn't really know much about the disease. I mean, I knew it was bad, but I didn't know how devastating it was. So I wanted to know everything about ALS. I turned to Dr. Janice Robertson. She's one of Canada's leading ALS researchers for a definition. ALS is myotrophic lateral sclerosis. Uh, a myotrophic is loss of muscle nourishment, and lateral is the regions in the nervous system and the spinal cord that are affected, and sclerosis is the scarring tissue. That gives us the name a myotrophic lateral sclerosis. As Jimmy Fallon mentioned in his video, the disease is known by another name, Lou Gehrig's disease. It was given that name after the famous American baseball player Lou Gehrig. You might remember him speaking before a packed Yankee Stadium in 1939. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I've been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Lou Gehrig died just a few years later, in 1941, from ALS. As I continued to research, I learned how quickly this disease progresses. It conquers the body and leaves it paralyzed. And so it's a very aggressive disease, from uh, starting from maybe a mild muscle weakness in the hand, a tripping of the foot. It progresses uh, throughout your body because motor neurons innervate the muscles responsible for voluntary muscle movement. So when those motor neurons degenerate, your muscles are no, getting, no longer getting activated, and so you slowly become paralyzed throughout your body. So it starts, as I say, maybe as a mild muscle weakness in your fingers or in your toes or in your speech, but this spreads throughout your body till it hits the muscles of your diaphragm and you can no longer breathe. 
So from first symptom to death can be as short as six months. 50% of people die with this disease within 18 months and 80% die within two to five years. So it's a, it's a horrible, aggressive disease. And another thing I learned, it's a disease that can be pretty indiscriminate when it comes to age. Typically, the average age is about 55 years, but there's, there's young people who get this disease of 18-year-old, 19-year-olds who get this disease. And you kind of had this feeling that these people are living with this disease in isolation and nobody really knew that they had it. And they have it for such a short period of time because they, they die so quickly, is that they're kind of being left on their own. Nobody really cares She's been researching ALS for 25 years, and before the Ice Bucket Challenge, she often encountered confused looks when she talked about her research. And I would say, well, I'm studying amyotrophic lateral sclerosis or motor neuron disease. Well, what is that? I've never heard of that. And so you'd always have to start your conversation explaining what it was without there being an awareness already in place of what it was. That all changed in 2014. I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was amazing. I thought about all those people who have been living with this disease, you know, dealing with it without people really knowing what it was. Finally, finally they're seen and people have a better understanding of what they're going through. Uh, It was just remarkable. It was fantastic. When I'm, you know, just going about my daily life, you know, um, when people ask me what I do, I say I work on ALS. And then they say, well, what's ALS? I said, well, do you remember the ice bucket challenge? And she go, oh, right. You know, but, you know, they need to be able to make that connection for sure as to the ice bucket challenge is this disease. And so that provides an automatic link for them to connect it all together as to, you know, what ALS is. ALS is a neurodegenerative disease like Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. I asked Dr. Robertson what she was trying to learn about the disease. What was interesting was the selective vulnerability of the disease. Why does why does ALS affect one part of the brain and not another part of the brain? And so what is it about motor neurons that make them particularly vulnerable uh, to ALS? So this is something that my research has progressed through to trying to understand is what is it that makes motor neurons vulnerable in ALS? And if we can understand that, then we can develop some kind of therapeutic measures and ultimately, you know, a cure for this disease. There's something Dr. Robertson said to me that I think is an important piece of information you should know about ALS. She explained to me most of the people diagnosed don't have a clear familial link to the disease. It kind of just pops up out of nowhere without warning. But the vast majority of cases are sporadic, meaning we don't know what caused the disease. There's no family history of the disease. Some uh, person has spontaneously developed ALS and we don't know why. In fact, only 5 to 10% of ALS cases have a clear family history. And even in those cases, it's still really hard to understand. I want to get back to the Frady's family. When Pete was diagnosed, he was only 27 years old at the time. He had his whole life in front of him. But now, instead of having conversations around how many kids he was going to have with Julie, the names of their children, coaching baseball and growing old together, 
they were going to be thinking about doctor's appointments, wheelchairs, retrofitting their home and vehicles. They would have to think about ventilators, hospital care. They'd have to think about end-of-life care. These are just some of the thoughts that would swirl through their minds on the days that followed. But things were not what you expected on the day that Pete was diagnosed. We that night all sat down for dinner. His parents, Pete and I, his sister and his brother, and, you know, we're all, like, just pale in the face. And I think none of us could even talk. And he sat us down and he was like, we're not going to do this. We're not going to just be sad. We're going to do something about this. And he was like, this is what I meant to do. I'm supposed to make this, you know, this is going to be my disease and we're going to do something to change it. And I think we were all in that moment like, is he serious? (laughs) Like, can we just have a minute to like, you know, grieve this life that we thought we were going to have? But he didn't want us to have a minute. He was like, tomorrow we're going to get on this, figure out who's a big game player and who, who we need to be with in order to like change this game. And he was adamant about that. Okay, so right now you might be wondering how the Ice Bucket Challenge started. Well, it began in 2014 with pro golfer Chris Kennedy. He was nominated by his coach to pour ice cold water on his head for a local charity. Kennedy recorded the challenge and posted it on YouTube. All right, I've been officially called out by John Bullis in the Ice Bucket Challenge. In return, I'm calling out Jeanette Sinertia, Matt Dodson, and Kevin Allen. You have 24 hours to respond, or you're going to donate $100 to the ALS Foundation. Here we go. (laughs) Good luck, guys. At this point, it wasn't officially dubbed the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge, but Kennedy selected the ALS Foundation as his charity of choice because it was a disease that had touched people close to him. In the video, Kennedy challenged his wife's cousin, whose husband had ALS. He also called on people to donate $100 to ALS research. The rest is history. Julie and Pete caught wind of the challenge from a friend in New York. Through our good friend Pat Quinn, who has ALS and lives in New York, he was challenged. And like in that challenge, he was also named, um, one of Pete's good friends was named. So Pete saw it immediately and thought, okay, we have, this is, we have to do something here. We've got to, everyone's got to get on this right away. Um, And we literally, I remember sitting down that night at dinner and he (laughs) directed all of us to go on Facebook and just continually start challenging people and sharing it. And, you know, we were all just doing it kind of, it was fun and we're doing it to our friends, but Pete's like, no, we have to challenge Bergeron on the Bruins and, you know, Tom Brady on the Patriots and all of these like key Boston figures. He's like, we're not trying to get like, just our friends and family we want everyone to know about this and you know once Pete had tapped into like his close Boston network of you know athletes and public figures and people in office it would really that is really where it started to spiral into something huge 
Huge is a bit of an understatement. (laughs) By tapping into his network in Boston, the campaign went viral. People everywhere began posting the Ice Bucket Challenge on social media, and it wasn't exclusive to the U.S. As you know, celebrities posted, and like wildfire, it caught on. People all over the world began to post. For Pete and Julie and the Frady's family, the viral success of the campaign was unbelievable. I was actually nine months pregnant at the time with our daughter, Lucy. And so I remember, you know, in those first few weeks of it starting to take off, we would wake up together every morning and check on our phone right away to see, like, who had done it. And, like, one day it was Justin Timberlake, and the next day it's Beyonce and Oprah Winfrey, and then it's Bill Gates. And, like, it's like once that happens, like, your brain stops, like, processing, like, how could this be real? This is far beyond anything we had imagined. And as the views on all the videos began to grow, so did the money coming in for ALS research. Globally, around $220 million had been raised because of the Ice Bucket Challenge. If you didn't catch that, let me repeat it. $220 million were raised in one year. And again, Let me remind you that this was a little-known disease that in previous years would be lucky if it saw a small fraction of that. It was unfathomable. I think grasp how how life-changing that is, how life-changing that is for, you know, this disease and where the the trajectory of the disease and what's going to happen now that this funding has started to happen. It was shocking for us, and it was shocking for everyone in the medical community, everyone who had spent, you know, their whole career trying to research this disease. It was kind of like such a huge windfall. It was amazing and overwhelming and completely hard to grasp. The Ice Bucket Challenge really took off in the U.S., but it made a huge impact north of the border here in Canada as well. I wanted to find out how the viral campaign did here, so I spoke with Tammy Moore, the CEO of ALS Canada. Back in 2014, she was on the job as CEO for just a few months. So the first thing that I remember is my family calling me out to be able to do the Ice Bucket Challenge. They were from Boston, and so they were impacted early by it, by um, Pete Frades and Pat Quinn and the gang down there. And so I got called out that way. And we started to see it starting to kind of pop up a bit. But at that point, it was like, yeah, we'll see. I'm not sure if it's going to come to Canada or how this is going to work. Again, remembering I was just a few months on the job at this point. And it wasn't until August... 7th, and we saw Sidney Crosby do the Ice Bucket Challenge. Hi, I'm Sidney Crosby, and I accept Craig Adams' Ice Bucket Challenge in support of all those with ALS, especially Pete Frades. I challenge Pascal Dupuy, Marc-Andre Fleury, and Chris Letang. I was actually out west at the time. I had just been meeting with the um, with one of the members from the finance committee to talk about the budget asks that we had into the federal government. And I'd gone back home to my family's place in Cranbrook. And there I was on August 8th, Friday, 
And it had just been crazy at the office, so I was back and forth with everybody on the phone at the office. And then it was like, okay, Sidney Crosby has done this. I think it's going to hit. And so I asked the staff to put up a website to be able to accept donations so we could track it. And they're like, it's Friday afternoon. Come on. I said, nope, get it done. If I'm wrong, we've wasted a couple hundred bucks. If you're wrong, we needed to track it and we'll have a different issue. And so they managed to get it up on the Friday afternoon and we raised $1,800 that weekend. It was like, wow, that's incredible. And when we compared to what we had done the previous year, we'd raised $200. And so we suddenly thought, hmm, We'll see how this goes. And so we started to see the momentum, the momentum come forward. And with my background with marketing and communications, I thought, okay, what's happening with campaigns? And we worked with our partners across the country to very quickly develop key messages. And as we started to see more and more things happening, it was like, I, th I think this might be something. And it was incredible to be a part of it at that moment. And it was such an empowering circumstance for our community, a community that had largely felt completely unseen, unheard, invisible. And suddenly ALS was at the forefront. People were talking about it. In Canada, people donated $17.2 million because of the Ice Bucket Challenge. And just to put that into perspective, in previous years, ALS Canada would raise around $6 million for the whole year which is a fraction of what the Ice Bucket Challenge brought in. And things were about to get better. So immediately with the $17.2 million, what also happened at that time, and it was really serendipitous, we were able to negotiate a, an agreement with Brain Canada. So we took the $17.2 million and they agreed to match $10 million of it. So right away we actually took $17.2 million and turned it into $27 million. So there was something I kept thinking about while researching the Ice Bucket Challenge. $27.2 million is a lot of money, no doubt. But where did the money go? $11.5 of the $17 million, plus the 10 from Brain Canada, was invested. So 20, over $21 million was invested in ALS research in the past five years. Of the remaining funds, we were able to work with our provincial partners across the country and distribute the funds so that people within their provinces were able to make the decisions of what would be needed to best meet the needs of their community. And each organization made different investments. We in Ontario really looked for what would be those things and those investments that we could make that we could leverage for the future. So we did things like pilot projects by putting more regional managers into communities. We were able to deliver more on-the-ground services that would help to support people in a better way. So we've been able to do that. And as a result, that's helped us then to better support people, but also to be able to raise more funds in those, in those communities. So we've been able to continue to engage in that way. We've been able to make investments in our equipment program so that we can better support people who are living with ALS today. Some of it's around business practices as well. We've been able to do a better job of understanding the costs associated with ALS so that we're able to advocate differently and create that business plan so that we're able to leverage those investments to be able to generate more funds. But the big part and bulk of the investments have gone to ALS research. So we've invested in over 90 projects and within Canada and actually some of those are international projects as well. 
In recent years, there have been some major developments in research. And while there is no cure, Dr. Robertson says there's been discoveries and therapies that can help some people living with ALS. Look, I'm no doctor, and this might get a bit complicated, so I'll try and be as clear in explaining this as possible. As I mentioned earlier, we know that some cases of ALS have a clear genetic link. So a grandmother might be diagnosed with the disease, and in the next generation, maybe one of her children might get it as well. When it comes to the genetic cases of ALS, Dr. Robertson says there is one form of the disease that is caused by a mutation of a certain gene. It's called superoxide dismutase 1. It also goes by the name SOD1. And what happens is this gene mutates, causing ALS. We have to remember this only happens in some of the genetic cases of ALS. But there's a therapy that basically suppresses this mutated gene, and that could be game-changing for those living with ALS. And the results have been startling, in fact. And uh, then phase three clinical trials are ongoing right now, and this is having a big impact on those individuals who are carrying that particular mutation. In the global scheme of ALS, is 1% to 2% of all ALS cases, but it offers great optimism that there are therapies on the horizon for everyone. This is a big breakthrough in the ALS field and in neurodegenerative disease as a whole, actually. The treatment is invasive. It involves an injection into the spinal cord every three months. And another factor researchers are considering, at what point do they begin treatment? Currently, this antisense oligonucleotide therapy is being tested in individuals who have already started the clinical symptoms of the disease because there was a worry that if you, you need to know that you're affecting the disease course. So some individuals, they've started the disease, you give them this antisense oligonucleotide therapy and the disease progression is halted. Now, the question is, if you want to start giving that therapy to someone before the disease has started, you're not sure what age that therapy should be given because it's it's an invasive procedure. You can't know when the optimal time is to give that treatment. So, But this is being tested uh, right now. Clinics around the world are considering those questions. And what we really need are, are, are a way of assessing that someone is in the very earliest stages of the disease that we can measure before there's any obvious clinical symptoms of the disease. And that would be measuring something in your blood, for example some kind of biomarker. Dr. Robertson says that before this SOD1 suppressant, advancements in treatments was limited. There was one therapy for a number of years, which was Rolutec, or Rolutec. And that extended life by only a matter of months in some individuals. And so really not satisfactory. And then recently there's been this new antioxidant therapy called Radikeva, Uh, which um, apparently can extend progression by a limited amount in the early stages of the disease anyway. Um, And so that was it. I mean, basically, if you were diagnosed with ALS, it's a death sentence. And so I think now, you know, with this antisense oligonucleotide, it offers hope for everyone. Okay, so while Dr. Robertson was explaining this to me, there was one thing that I kept thinking about. Maybe you are too. This therapy for SOD1 is huge, but I couldn't help but think, what was the Ice Bucket Challenge's role in finding this therapy? 
The money that came in from the Ice Bucket Challenge was directed into that program. This was in the United States. They had millions of dollars that went right into that program. And look, now we have a treatment for ALS, a real treatment for ALS that we didn't think would be possible. So, yeah, the Ice Bucket Challenge has been fundamental in changing the potential and also right on the ground of therapies uh, for this disease. It's changed everything. Absolutely changed everything. It's been six years since the Ice Bucket Challenge took over our social media feeds. And since 2014, donations haven't been the same. No. So the Ice Bucket Challenge was truly an anomaly. It was lightning in a jar. And we've never been able to recreate it. So very much the next year, we thought, could we have a an anniversary of the Ice Bucket Challenge? And it was a difficult time because you're having to potentially plan for it, but also scale so that if it didn't happen, we uh, didn't, we hadn't outsized ourselves. But on the other hand, to be able to make sure that if it did happen, we would have the capacity to deal with it differently than we had the very first year. But we, in fact, didn't see any aspect of the anniversary. And we had many people in our community try. We worked to be able to see what it was that we could do to be able to reignite it. And there was just no way to get it off the ground. Before the pandemic, ALS Canada was on track to raise about $10 million in 2020. But now it's expected to be significantly less than that. Nowhere near the $17.2 million that were raised in that one year, but they have incrementally been able to increase. And we've also been able to renegotiate things like our agreement with Brain Canada. So that although, again, it's not an additional $10 million, but even this year we're looking at an additional $1 million. Again, not anywhere near the need for this complex disease, but it's more than we had prior to the Ice Bucket Challenge as well. Pete, Julie, and the Frady's family watched in awe as the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge took off in 2014. And while it was definitely something to be celebrated, the family was still forced to watch the toll the disease took on Pete's body. He lost the ability to speak that summer. So only using a computer to communicate, he um, typed with his eyes. He had no function in his hands. But there was one day in 2014 that Julie says she will never forget. And it involved Pete, his love of baseball, and you guessed it, (laughs) the Ice Bucket Challenge. As Julie explains, early on, Pete had made the decision not to do the Ice Bucket Challenge himself. You know, for someone who's paralyzed but has all feeling, dumping cold water over your head is kind of torture. So he wasn't going to do it. And I remember probably two weeks into it when things started to really go crazy, he like looked at me and he, he was at this point typing on the computer and he said, I have to do the ice bucket challenge and I have to do it at Fenway. (laughs) And I was like, of course you do. You'd have to do it at Fenway and you have to do (laughs) It's like, you couldn't just do it in our backyard. He had to do it bigger and better and in front of a crowd, which is just so him. But that was extremely, you know, memorable for me just because I obviously, as his wife, was just thinking about his health and well-being. I'm like, you really shouldn't do that. Let's just do fake ice cubes or something. 
but he was so dead set and he made this amazing day happen. And we have all these incredible pictures of Pete in front of um, the green monster on the field at Fenway Park doing the ice bucket challenge. And, you know, that's that day I will never forget. By the end of the summer in 2014, almost everyone had at least heard of the ALS Ice Bucket Challenge. But Julie and Pete had another reason to celebrate, their new baby girl. Yes, Lucy was born in August 31st, so we always call her the exclamation point, you know, to that Ice Bucket Challenge month. But as the new parents began to navigate this life with a new baby... Pete's disease progressed quickly. By February 2015, he was put on a ventilator. And four years later, he died on December 9th, 2019. He was 34 years old. Just the companionship, I think. Obviously, you know, for my daughter, just having her dad. Yeah, that's... Just being with him and seeing him is its so hard. I don't think I'll ever get used to it. To get a better sense of what it was like to personally get diagnosed like Pete, I wanted to speak with someone living with ALS today. Someone who could explain to me how life has changed and try and give me some sort of understanding about what it feels like. I met Margot Algie at her Toronto home. She was diagnosed with ALS in 2015. She can still stand and uses a walker to get around, but some days are better than others. It's a frustrating daily battle. So what it boils down to is your body has a series of cramps which really tighten up your limbs. The cramps hurt like the dickens. Your brain signals, even though you say bend leg or lift arm, they're just cut off. So basically, you'll end up with not being able to walk anymore, not being able to use your arms to scratch your nose or lift something out of the cupboard. You'll be bed or chair ridden to the point where nothing moves except your eyes. You'll be able to bat your eyes for yes or no's, and that's about it. You might have breathing apparatus, but basically everything's gonna stop moving. I've never been one to be a wimp, but once in a while these days, I do have a, oops, it's terrifying to think about, especially with my voice slowing down so much. And um, I can no longer sing, but I think my lucky stars, I can still speak. But sooner or later, that's going to go away. And I don't know what's going to happen if I even want to get to that state. It's, um, that's why we don't dwell on it day to day. And I'm glad I'm on a slow progression because hopefully that's years away. 
ALS is something she's had to deal with every day. She thinks about the disease. She sees the changes in her body. But there are times where it takes her back to 2014. For a brief moment, one summer, people all around the world were also thinking about ALS, and they were motivated to make a change. I think that we really need to to harness and hold on to and keep it growing and moving. It's such a devastating disease. There's so much money that's needed for research, and the Ice Bucket Challenge certainly helped to kickstart that. But we need... We need that funding coming in again and again and again. And I wish the Ice Bucket Challenge were big every year. But I guess people only want to get soaked with bloody cold water once in a lifetime. So we can't ask them to do it again. So we look to other ways to fundraise. And... It, my gosh, I wish I could win a lottery and give it all to ALS research. They're so close. The Ice Bucket Challenge started so many research programs, all of which take time, of course, and I don't think anything in my lifetime is going to come along, but I sure wish I could help to solve the problem through clinical studies so that in years to come, there will be something that can stop or halt the disease. December 9th, 2020 marks one year since Pete's passing. And you may have seen this on the news recently, but just a few weeks ago, Pat Quinn, Pete's friend and the co-creator of the Ice Bucket Challenge, Well, he also passed away from complications associated with ALS. He was 37 years old. In Julie's house, hardly a moment goes by where Pete's name isn't mentioned. Julie is committed to keeping his memory alive through their daughter, Lucy. She knows he's famous, she always tells me. Um, But they had an incredible bond you know this is not unlike any other child that would lose their father who was able-bodied so she's you know she's learning to live with this new normal but it's it's obviously challenging she's five so she asks a lot of great questions um and we talk about him constantly I think that's kind of all I can do for her now is just to continue to keep his memory here and remind her of how much he loves her and all of the things she gets from him. She's so much like him in a lot of ways. And just keeping, you know, keeping his memory and his livelihood fresh for her is extremely important. Another way she's keeping her husband's legacy alive is through the Pete Frady's Family Foundation. The foundation raises money to help pay for home care for people living with progressed ALS, something that was incredibly important for Pete, Julie, and Lucy. And our goal is to help more patients stay at home and help pay for the the home health care that, you know, it's required to have. Um, 
And that's our main focus, I think, is giving families, you know, this at least somewhat of a piece of help when they're given this, you know, life changing. I say, I always tell people like ALS was life changing, but living with a ventilator was a complete out of body experience. You don't have any clue what's coming. And we just want to be able to give people the opportunity to make that choice without having, you know, the financial burden be such a, you know, main deciding factor. Hearing this made me stop for a second. I mean, here in Canada, there are ways to subsidize essential items like ventilators, and there are ways for people to get in-home care. Look, it's certainly not a perfect system, and it varies from province to province, but there are options. This might seem obvious, but I had to take a second to step back and realize that's not the case for other parts of the world, like the U.S. I asked Julie about this because I was curious. I mean, in-home care must have been an issue incredibly important to the Frady's family if they decided to create a foundation in Pete's honor for that exact situation. Well, I mean, it's, the reality is only 5% of people choose to be put on a ventilator because you're told very point blankly that if you choose to do that, the financial burden will be extreme. That is, it's black and white and the doctors are very upfront about it. And they, you know, uh, we were asked hundreds of times over the first three and a half years, if we were sure that was our decision because of what it all entails. It's not just the person that's going to have to live on a ventilator. It's so much more than that. I want to take a moment here. Julie said the reality is that only 5% of people choose to be put on a ventilator because of the extreme financial burden. But for the Frady's family, there was no other option. As a family, we've kind of taken on this cause of in-home health care because there is no, you know, in the United States, if you wanted to have in-home health care, it's, you know, you pay privately for that. And it's astounding costs. It's, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, if not. It's just sickening and it's not right. And it's, um, it's become, you know, kind of one of our leading, you know, things to fight with this is because families not only have to deal with this disease, but there is an extreme financial burden that comes with that. And that should not be the case, but unfortunately it is the reality. Um, And that's something that's hugely important to us because we were able through fundraising to keep Pete at home, but it's certainly not even close to the reality of most patients. And that's unfathomable to me if I had to live apart from him. That, right there, it really shook me. Imagine having a loved one getting this life-changing diagnosis, feeling helpless, knowing that the life you once dreamed of would now just be that, a dream. But then think about paying hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to have your loved one living comfortably at your home with your family. 
going into unimaginable debt just to enjoy the last few years or months with the person you love. The Pete Frady's Family Foundation has raised over $250,000. In 2020, the foundation has given out 13 grants that are meant to help with home care for people living with progressed ALS. His memory continues to inspire people everywhere. I mean, I think Pete set a really great example to a lot of patients dealing with this, that we have to be vocal about this disease because it is so easy to want to hide. It's really easy to just want to give up. And I think his legacy is, you know, I've seen so many patients and they've reached out to Pete when he was alive and us still now that say what an inspiration it is to them to be able to Google this disease and see someone who's worked so hard. The Ice Bucket Challenge brought light to this dark disease. And while it was a fleeting moment, it brought hope to people like Julie, Margot, and the countless others who have been touched by ALS. It sparked profound change in treatment like nothing else did before. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. And special thanks to Margot and Julie and the Frady's family for sharing their stories with us. Whatever Happened To is written and produced by me, Erica Vela, with producer Dila Velasquez. Our audio producer is Rob Johnson. And a special thanks to Chris Bassett. Let us know what your thoughts are of this episode and please share it with a friend. You could even call it a challenge. It will help us grow the show and bring you more incredible stories. You can also help us out by giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can also reach out to me personally. We're always looking for stories. So if there's a new story you want us to revisit, you can reach me on Twitter at Erica Vela or email me at erica.vela at globalnews.ca. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time on Whatever Happened To. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.